always think year to year. I always tell people like, only spend one hour a year looking at and trading your investment accounts at the most. I don't think you need to spend a lot of time and effort doing implementation, but spend a little bit more time planning. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independent Show, where today we're going to be analyzing the pros and cons of a Roth and a traditional IRA with CPA Cody Garrett. But before we get into that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, this weekend was a great one. It was a lot of surprises, like things I didn't know was going to happen, but it turned out to be an awesome weekend where... The first surprise being so Saturday, we went to this party and it was one of these things where Leslie had gotten an email. We see stuff come on Instagram or whatever all the time, these random events. And, you know, we just go to them. We don't have, right? We don't have pets, kids. So we just go to all these random things. Sometimes <laughs> they're terrible. Sometimes like no one's there, but sometimes they're good. And so we roll up to this place, not knowing what we were getting into. It was a unicorn party. So everyone is dressed in like, white and crazy colors and unicorn stuff and we show up like a little over an hour after it's supposed to start because we you know we don't want to be like only people standing around in a room we show up and it's packed full of people and it's awesome and it's like free food there's free drinks there's djs there's indoor outdoor stuff there's fire spinners there's all kinds of stuff going on and it's this awesome party that's completely free and i don't even know how we got on this email list but we just show up to these things not knowing anyone else there we just went just us two and needless to say, like we didn't get home till like 5 a.m. So we had a good time. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and then the other surprise was on Sunday, Leslie had planned this thing for my birthday where we were going to go out and do some go-kart racing out at the Circuit of the Americas track where like the F1 races and NASCAR races are out in Austin. And it was this awesome little track with tons of tight curves and it kept up with your lap time so you could compete against each other. And they went like 55 miles an hour. So that was fun. But the development that you're probably the most excited to hear about is, I know you've been asking me for a while, if I got the house up on Airbnb, we did finally get a room up on Airbnb, so an individual room. And I'm thinking, I don't know if this is going to work, right? Like we're, we are a little South as far as Austin is concerned. And it's one room, we have no reviews and just like instantly, like somebody books it for three days. And then before that person checks out that we have a person coming this Thursday and then a person coming Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And there was two people who were actually trying to come those same days. And we had to kind of like down select. So it's already getting traction. And I think once we get a little base of, you know, some five star reviews and some good feedback, I'll probably start, you know, increasing that price a little bit and just finding that line between vacancy and maximum price. So very excited about that and proud of us for, for finally getting that thing on the market. And you know, I got a nerd out on the numbers here. What are you listing the one bedroom shared room at? Most nights it's around like 70 bucks. The weekends we've got it more like 90 bucks right now. I think we'll be able to increase that, but I just wanted to, I wanted to start getting it booked because A, you know, we had no reviews. B, I don't have a ton of dates like way out in the future. So they're all like very soon dates that I've got on there. So I needed to really attract people. So I went in at a pretty aggressive price, but still enough money to make it worth our while. Cause honestly, the people who are here this weekend, like we didn't have to do anything. We rarely saw them. They didn't make a mess. They didn't use our kitchen. They didn't do anything. So our house just stayed perfectly clean the whole time. We saw them a couple times and that was it. Just wanted to highlight that because let's call it 80. And right now you said you're on the low side. You rent that out for 10 days out of the month, a third of the month, and it's 800 extra dollars. That's for getting out on Airbnb and renting out a room. And I know it's not for everybody. And 
I always get a lot of pushback. I don't run out of room in my house, whatever. But 800 extra bucks is nothing to, to sneeze at. So I think that's awesome, man. For me, it was playing a lot of catch up. So as listeners know, got in from Colorado last Wednesday. So I definitely didn't do as much work as I anticipated or as I had hoped to do in Colorado. So it was a lot of catching up over the end of the week, like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Sunday was my fiance Lauren's birthday. On Saturday, her family threw this big brunch. She had a bunch of people over. It was awesome. I definitely overindulged a bit. I was so full after that. And then later on, we went out to dinner and we went out to this like bar slash club with all of our friends. It wasn't it was an absolute blast. They have like these light up champagne buckets. You know me, Justin, I love my my bottle service type of stuff. So <laughs> got, a, got a couple of champagne bottles in the buckets. It was just a fun night and we get to hang out with all of our friends. And then Sunday was kind of just relaxing and hanging out, watch some movies, got some stuff done. And something else on the business front that happened this past week. So as you know, I run the Etsy course ePrintables welcomed a couple hundred new students into the course, which was super exciting to kind of e-meet everybody. And everyone was like talking about where they're from and what they do and their ideas for their shop. So that was a ton of fun, a lot of work as well, because like I said, we're kind of doing birthday stuff all weekend while managing like a large live public launch, which had a lot of moving parts and pieces. But but all of that is now said and done. And we're excited to have a couple new hundred students join us and start this fun side hustle selling digital products. But Justin, that's enough about us and what we've got going on. Let's talk about our guest for today, Cody Garrett. So this is an episode that Justin and I, honestly, it's been in my notes app for a while. It was like Roth versus traditional, but I just didn't feel like we were the ones to talk about it. Like we weren't quite qualified. So we pulled in CPA Cody Garrett to talk all about Roth versus traditional. And this guy has a laundry list, the pros of Roth, the cons of Roth, the pros of traditional, the cons of traditional. And a lot of times in the financial independent space, you'll hear a lot of people just say, you know, go Roth, like Roth or die. But Cody actually has a lot of good counterpoints and talks about when traditional might make sense, when Roth might make sense, and how you can at least have the tools to figure out what's going to be best for your situation and have the least tax burden possible. Yeah, I think if you take anything away from this episode, it's just realizing that everybody's in a different scenario and there could be a blend of these tactics that you need to take advantage of. Depending on what point in time you are in your life, how you envision the rest of your life going, You know, do you want to retire early? Are you not going to retire early? Uh, do you think you'll make more money in the future, less money in the future? There's all these variables that no website that you go to and just click on is going to be able to tell you uh, the answer to without knowing. Like These rules of thumb are never completely accurate. Like There are things that could change the situation. So like Cody said, the, like the Roth or die, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is understand when and where to use which ones and then really do some soul searching and think about your situation. And with all that information, then you can make an informed decision and pick which one you should use. And like I said before, it might be a mix of both. I have a good feeling this is going to be an episode that a lot of you will want to reference again in the future or send to a friend or send to someone that maybe you've tried to educate on Roth versus traditional and you're just having a hard time giving them the best examples. You can find all the information for this over at thefyshow.com slash Cody. That's thefyshow.com slash C-O-D-Y. Take it away, Cody. Before working on financial records, I was working on musical records. So I always say you can kind of see my background if you're watching on video. I was a professional musician for 10 years. What I didn't realize back then was, you know, you have to be pretty financially independent. We were talking about five financially independent, but you have to be pretty like, financially intentional <laughs> about managing your own money. So as a professional musician, because you have variable sources of income, but a lot of fixed expenses, it's one of those, if you don't tell your money what to do, it tells you what to do. <laughs> so 
being a professional musician, I became pretty fascinated with personal finance and just just on my own stuff through that path. Like just I'm the type of person that if I want to learn a lot about a subject, you know, I go real deep. I listen to every podcast two times speed to go to the library to get all the books. So I did that in the personal finance space and through that discovered a few podcasts like Radical Personal Finance with Joshua Sheets, the Choose FI podcast, you know, their Facebook group. And now I've actually been a guest on that show as well. I've gone super deep into personal finance. And in 2018, I went so deep that I discovered there's this thing called the Certified Financial Planning Designation. It's like kind of the gold standard financial planning as a designation. And I actually enrolled in a CFP education program just to learn more. And like two classes into like the, you know, six classes, I realized this is what I want to do for a living. I love playing music, but I'd rather like play the gigs because I want to, not because I have to at some point. <laughs> so I went down, you know, drank out of the fire hose for nine months and realized, hey, I really want to help people align their conference, their financial ecosystem, all that quantitative stuff, all the numbers. But I want to like create a bridge between that and this other island, which is their qualitative, like their values and desired outcomes as a family. Because what I realized is you can find all the quantitative information, you can Google that, right? But building like a personalized bridge between your money and your life is something that it's very difficult to do by yourself. First of all, if you don't understand the quantitative details, all the terminology we'll talk about today, like traditional Roth, like what does that mean? But also you really have to take a deeper look at your qualitative values, desired outcomes that you have as a family. Some people, they just hear something about a Roth IRA and they're like, oh, let's do that without realizing like, does it even make sense for me to do that? Like quantitatively, right? Do I have earned income? Do I, is my income too high to make direct contributions versus going backdoor? That's quantitative. But actually understanding if that makes sense for your life, and it will go deeper into the traditional versus Roth. Like it's not just numbers. It has to do with like, when do you expect to spend the money that you're putting into these savings vehicles? So I'm really excited to dig deep. So ultimately I went from music to money, but I've gone really deep into the financial part. In my practice, by the way, I own a financial planning business at full capacity. So sorry, I'm not taking any more clients. If you're looking for a financial planner, let me know. I can help you find a resource there. But I specifically work with DIY investors on the path to early retirement within five years. So these are people who I describe how the time, the temperament, and the talent to click the buttons on Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab or whichever custodian they like to have their money at. But they want help with all the actual advice. Like, what do I do? Like, what should I do? Should I contribute to traditional Roth? So I own a financial planning business to help people make those decisions in alignment with their unique lives. So obviously today, the meat of this episode is going to be digging into that kind of traditional versus Roth. But since you do work with a lot of clients, I love asking people who have that kind of direct exposure, like what is maybe one of the more common things, especially since your clientele is so targeted, like our audience, like what's one of the most common things that people are just not paying attention to that they're really overlooking? So most people come to me the number one phrase they say is, I don't know what I don't know. They know a lot. They can kind of understand how their tax return looks like, you know, with the difference between AGI and taxable income and all those things. But they come to me and say, I know that there's some tax opportunities here. They've heard about tax loss or tax gain harvesting, but they're not quite sure, like, how does that actually work? Can you look at my portfolio and tell me how it works in my life, not just generally? So most people come to me for like the tangible value of tax planning. The objective there isn't just to save money in the current year. You know, a lot of us are familiar with tax preparation, tax preparers. They just focus on what happened last year, right? Tax planning is focused on like what happens, not just during your lifetime, but like the future generations right, of your family and your beneficiaries. So my job as a financial planner from a tax perspective, you can't really do financial planning without looking at taxes since nearly every movement of money involves a tax consequence or a specific exclusion. So I help people not just, you know, figure out the best thing to do this year, but really optimize. And I want them to have 
the most amount of wealth in their lifetime after taxes, not just before taxes. So if you were to squeeze all the clients I've worked with into one family, it would be a couple with two kids, 52 years old, with around you know, 2.5 million in investable assets outside of their house, usually like one house and maybe one rental. So you know, you're looking at like four to five million dollar net worth. And most of them have you know, 60 to 70 percent of their assets, their investments in pre-tax traditional retirement accounts. So they're coming to me and saying, I unwind these accounts tax efficiently, but also they're retiring before 59 and a half. Right. So we'll talk a little bit about how they can avoid the 10% additional tax. Some people call it a penalty, which sounds more brutal than an additional tax. <laughs> but yeah, they come to me to say, hey, like I'm about to retire. I need to know which accounts do I pull from in which order and how do I do that to keep most of my money and you know not give most of it to Uncle Sam. So before Justin and I just start absolutely hammering you with traditional and Roth <laughs> questions, can we just quickly define them? I think that'd be helpful. There's a lot of our audience who understands generally what a traditional, what a Roth account is, but I think it would just be helpful to flesh that out before we start digging into the nuances. Sure. So one thing that I've, I've heard from people, they kind of assume that they're account types. Like, yes, like, you know, your account will say traditional IRA or Roth IRA, but that word traditional or Roth just defines a tax characteristic of two things, how the tax characteristic of the contribution and the tax characteristic and rules around the distributions. So starting with traditional, another word for traditional is pre-tax, which means that there's two ways to make a traditional contribution pre-tax. One is to exclude it from tax to begin with. So this would happen if you're contributing, for example, to a traditional 401k. So the way that works is you're, that, that contribution doesn't even show up on your W. When you receive your W-2, it doesn't even show up as wages in box one. It's already been excluded from income. You don't even put on your tax return that you contributed to a traditional 401k. So it's been excluded before... They're going to know about it, but not through your personal tax return. The other way is through a deduction. So on the flip side, if you're not contributing to a traditional 401k, you're contributing to a traditional IRA. It's an individual account versus an employer-sponsored account. It's not excluded from income because you can only contribute directly from a bank account, right? And that money's already been taxed previously if it's in your bank account. So the money that you're putting into a traditional IRA, depending on your income thresholds, right? There are rules around this on whether or not you're covered by an employer plan and whether you can deduct it. But if you can deduct it on your tax return, it's considered an adjustment to income. It's a, like an above the line, above AGI deduction, where you can say, hey, I contributed $6,000 to my traditional IRA, and I can deduct that, meaning I can reduce my taxable income by that amount this year. So traditional contributions are either exclusions or deductions from income. And the problem is, right, we think of a traditional IRA as an asset on the balance sheet, but the IRS just sees it as income that hasn't been taxed yet. If it is excluded or deducted from your income, guess what? That money that comes out of that account, the IRS is going to be knocking at your door saying, hey, when you take that money out, it's, once it becomes income to you, it's got to be taxed as income in the quarter that was received. On the flip side, you go to Roth, right? I guess you know, we'll go into the advantages, disadvantages a little bit more. But you know, the Roth, what you're doing there is Roth is just named after, I think it was a governor or senator, right? It's not named after, what's the singer's name? Lee Roth, right? It's not named after David Lee Roth, but so it's like a senator or governor who, again, that's not like a, you know, Roth sounds like a fancy word, but it's just named after somebody. Roth is the same thing as saying after tax. So what this means is the contribution is made after tax. So this is effectively, it's money that's, if you're contributing to a Roth 401k, it's just that you don't really see the money. That tax has been withheld directly from your paycheck sent to the government. And what remains, you're able to, contribute. Again, there's 
contribution limits, right? But in a 401k, there aren't any income limits, thankfully, but you can contribute if your employer allows, your plan allows, you can make Roth contributions. A really good example here, I have the math, right? So if you contribute to Roth for every $1,000, let's assume that you're in the 12% marginal tax bracket, right? You're earning around $100,000 married filing jointly. For every $1,000 you contribute to your Roth, you're paying $136 in taxes. We'll get deeper into the weeds, but if you contribute $1,000 to a traditional 401k or $1,000 to a Roth 401k, like you're contributing the same amount, but you have to remember that when you contribute to a Roth, you've paid taxes on that amount versus you know, excluded or deducted. The big benefit that most people talk about when they talk about Roth contributions actually isn't the contribution at all. It's when you get to retirement, how are those distributions taxed? There's this idea that I've heard, again, it's typically used in the wrong way to convince people to contribute to Roth. Imagine a picture of like, you know, a big apple tree, you know, a big apple orchard. And somebody says, would you rather pay taxes on the seeds, right? And then you plant them and it grows to this big tree. Or would you rather pay taxes on every single apple that you pick from the tree in retirement, right? So the Roth contribution is effectively paying taxes on the seeds and all that growth, depending on if you're able to meet, you know, the qualified distribution rules in retirement and not, you know, break any of the rules, every dollar that comes out of that Roth 401k or Roth IRA can be completely tax and penalty free, which is huge. Because if you contribute, let's say if you contribute over your lifetime, $100,000 to an account, now it's worth a million. You're like, wow, that 900,000 is completely tax free. Like Roth is a no brainer. So we'll get down into the misconceptions there. But again, if you want to simplify on this show, right? Traditional pre-tax contribution, taxable distribution, Roth after tax. So you're making contributions with after tax, that's money that's been taxed before. But the distributions are potentially tax-free, which is a huge benefit of the Roth IRA and the Roth 401k. And kind of digging into that, you know, the analogy used a little bit with like the apple tree, the way the Roth works. Would it be true, though, that if you're paying the same tax bracket, you know, percentages now as you are when you're taking the money out in the future, that if you put the money in a traditional or Roth, that actually in the end, it comes out to be the exact same money in your pocket? That's correct. That's one of the funny things about that analogy of the seeds versus the apples. Thing is, visually, you think, oh, like we think of seeds as being really small. Like if you pay taxes on the seed, you think because seeds are small, you're going to pay like less taxes. And then, oh, big apples. Like, you know, the people who say this kind of stuff are trying to scare you into like, oh, like they're really worried about future tax legislations. Yeah. One of the things I say is like the taxes you pay on the apples might actually be less than what you paid on the seeds. But again, that's one of those like kind of visual illusions of, you know, when people talk about this. So great point, Justin, that yeah, just because if you were to deduct or exclude that income from contributing to traditional, right, at the, let's say 22% marginal tax rate, and then you're distributing that money at the same 22% marginal tax rate. Again, we can go into the stuff that's out of our control, which is future tax legislation. But yeah, it, you're paying the same amount of dollars. Actually, you can put it into a spreadsheet, slide it down, you're paying the same amount of dollars. Again, I guess you could get into the debate about like, you know, how much is that dollar worth in the future versus now, like inflation adjusted and all that. Just simply, yes, like there is not a rule that's going to say that the taxes today are going to be less than the taxes tomorrow or vice versa. A lot of that gets into the personal details. And so let's talk about future tax rates aside. What are some of the quantifiable advantages and disadvantages of each type of account? Because I know you already talked about some of the reasons people say like do Roth versus traditional, but I don't think a lot of people talk about like traditional, why it has advantages over the Roth. So can we just right. kind of pin those head to head and talk about some of the advantages? Maybe we'll do disadvantages after. So it's not just you want to monologue for 15 <laughs> minutes. Let's start with the traditional, right? So again, a tax preparer, like somebody who's just looking one year at a time is going to say traditional is awesome, right? 
because you get to reduce your current taxable income, right? If you're contributing to that traditional 401k, it's excluded from income. If you're contributing to a traditional IRA and deducting that contribution, it reduces your current taxable income. Therefore, guess what? Pay less taxes, pay less taxes this year, which is fantastic, right? Everybody loves to pay t- less taxes in the current year. Another possible advantage of a traditional, I guess we'll, we'll stick to a traditional 401k. We'll, we'll stick into the employer-sponsored plans here. If you contribute to a traditional 401k, right, you reduce current income, your current taxable income. In a retirement, guess what? Your tax rate on that money could be lower, right? Let's say that you retire at 60, you have no pensions, you haven't taken social security, your only source of income is from that account. You can really see that your tax rates actually might be lower in retirement. And a good example of this, let's say somebody's in the 22% marginal tax bracket, married filing jointly. You jump into the 22% marginal tax bracket once your AGI, adjusted gross income, passes around $117,000. But if your only source of income in retirement is distributions from that traditional account, the only way you get to a 22% effective or average tax rate on those distributions is if your AGI was over $506,000, right? So you can see if your only source of income in retirement is from those accounts you know, being distributed, that really makes the case for making traditional contributions. So not only can you reduce current taxable income, but your future average tax rate of those distributions could be lower in retirement. In retirement, let's say that you do have like a big traditional 401k. Guess what? If you retire early enough and you have like a big gap between retirement and when other income sources begin, social security and you know, things like you know, Medicare and Irma and social, those become a big deal, right? You might have years where you can actually convert those traditional balances to Roth you know, at a lower effective tax rate. And you can slowly unwind and intentionally pay less taxes, not just in retirement, but even like going forward because that money is being shifted now to the Roth for future tax-free growth. Another thing about Roth is that there are no RMDs, required minimum distributions from Roth IRAs. So that means that when you turn 72, 73, 75, whatever the number ends up being for RMDs when you retire, as long as that money is moved your Roth 401k into a Roth IRA, the IRS doesn't require you to take any of the money out during your lifetime as forced income or withdrawals. Two more, I promise, this goes really deep. (laughs) Two more is with a traditional retirement plan, what's nice is that if you're giving to qualified charitable organizations in retirement, once you turn, you know, once you're over age 70 and a half, kind of a funny age, you can start giving money directly to qualified charities from your traditional IRA, which is great. It's called a qualified charitable distribution. If you know anybody who's over 70, it gives to church or gives to charity, right? Let them know they probably shouldn't be giving it out of their bank account at this point. If they have IRAs, they should be giving it directly from their IRA. What's nice is that's effectively giving that money to charity pre-tax. You know, of course, you can't double dip and take an itemized deduction on that money. But most people are itemizing their deductions to begin with. The last one is, let's say that I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm paying like a ton of tax federally, state, and local, right? But when I retire, I'm going to move to good old Texas and only pay federal. So one advantage of making a traditional contribution is you might retire in a state that has either lower or no state income tax. So a lot of people I'm working with as a financial planner, they're living in New York, New York City. They're paying Yonkers and all the crazy tax, but they're going to retire in Florida. And all that money they're taking out is only going to be taxable at the federal tax rates. So again, you can see here, those are just the advantages of traditional. Any questions before I go to the advantages of Roth? Go for it. Because I was going to let you go through that. And then I was going to ask like a more of a scenario question based on some of the advantages we just heard. Absolutely. So advantages of Roth. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. One of the great things about Roth is that, let's say that I contribute to a Roth IRA. Every dollar that I contribute I can withdraw that amount. So I'm getting my Texas slang back now that I hear Justin talking. <laughs> All the money that I contribute to a Roth 401k or Roth IRA, I can actually take, again, assuming that you're able to take money out of that account, you can actually withdraw your direct contributions back out without any tax or penalty at any age. So you don't have to wait till you're 60 to take money back out of a Roth IRA. Your contributions, your direct contributions that you made actually come out first. There's not coffee and cream of a mix of earnings and contributions. You can take your cost basis effectively back out. Biggest advantage of a Roth account is tax-free earnings, right? So not only can you potentially have, you know, take that money out tax-free, but all the, you know, dividend and interest income on those mutual funds or whatever you own in your Roth account, those are all growing tax-deferred, right? And then when you distribute, they can be distributed tax-free if you're meeting those rules. A big advantage, right, is control over taxable income. This is really what it comes down to. Let's say that you're retired and you know you got huge medical bill come up, right? Let's say you're not, you don't have like great health coverage and you're paying fifty, hundred thousand dollars on some type of medical issue, or you're just in the go-go stage. You're going on that Viking cruise your first year of retirement. It would be nice to not have to pay ten thousand dollars for that trip. It would be nice if you didn't have to pay like thirteen or fourteen thousand dollars to take a ten thousand dollar trip. So in retirement, you could actually say, hey. We're going to pull money for our big lumpy expense from our Roth account, right? And only pay $10,000 for that $10,000 trip. If, especially if you have those like big variants in spending in retirement, you have control over taxable income by picking, by having really balance between your pre-tax, taxable, and tax-free account distributions. Another advantage is, you know, with control over taxable income, it's really funny. I work with people who they're retiring with $5 million in investable assets before 65. So they're not yet on Medicare and they're not covered by employer-sponsored health plan. But what's crazy is they have so much control over their taxable income because of their balance and their Roth accounts and taxable brokerage accounts. They're actually receiving subsidies for healthcare. So think about it. Like, I've actually worked with somebody who had a net worth of $22 million and they were getting subsidies for their healthcare. You know, whether it was moral or not, right? They're just, they were playing the game of the way the tax code set up. They got those premium tax credits for the healthcare marketplace plan. And they pay nothing for their health care for a family of four, just because they had control over taxable income by being able to pull money from those different accounts. Another thing is if you have lower income, you might not actually have to pay any tax on Social Security or only 50%. So just for clarity here, Social Security income can be either 0%, 50%, or 85% of it can be included in taxable income. So if you can keep your income low enough when you're receiving Social Security, you can actually pay zero, you can actually include zero of that social security and taxable income. And when you do turn 65 and older, IRMA, which is effectively income-related Medicare, right? what is the actual term for it, right? This is the part that you edit out of the video, right? <laughs> so IRMA is effectively like, what are your surcharges on your Medicare premiums going to be once you're 65 and older? 
So again, if your Medicare premiums are based on income, that control over income can be beneficial to you in retirement by having more money in the Roth and not just traditional accounts. Another thing about Roth is not only do you have tax-free distributions, when you pass away, and that's inherited by, you know, let's say your kids, even though they might be forced to take that money out within 10 years with the new rules, all that inheritance can be tax-free, which is huge because the last thing you want is to die and all your retirement accounts go to your kids and they're probably in their highest earning years. They're in the 32, 35% tax brackets, crushing it. And the last thing you want is for them to be paying like 30 to 50% on your inherited assets and taxes. That's where you have to understand that tax planning isn't just for your lifetime. It's for the future generations, really like building that financial family tree for your family. And then lastly, advantages is there's no RMDs. You mentioned before, there's no RMDs of the Roth, but there are RMDs for the traditional distributions. Well, we've kind of powered through a lot of advantages for both. So there's, you know, there's wins for both of those, but let's take mm-hmm. us through a lens of like a, a scenario that I could see a lot of our listeners in. You're in a high tax bracket now. You're planning on retiring early. You're probably not going to really have any income outside of things like dividends when you do retire. You're going to be a long way away from that, you know, 59 and a half. So let's say you're paying 32, 35% tax brackets now. And again, you're not really planning on having any big side hustle when you get out. You're just kind of going to do a traditional mm-hmm. retirement, but you're going to retire early. So why wouldn't you do as much traditional as you possibly can now and then do the conversions you talked about? and then back those into Roth. Is there any reason why that wouldn't be the path you should go down? Yeah, the only thing that I might change, again, I guess you are assuming too that like they have the ability to have a high savings rate, like they're going for it, like they, they have discipline and they're saving money. Right. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Like that's where you get into like the, almost like the no-brainer <laughs> type of scenario where like, yeah, you better be making traditional contributions, especially if you're gonna retire early, you're gonna be, again, that's gonna only be your only source of income in early retirement. And it's going to leave you open for a lot of those early retirement distribution strategies without the 10% penalty, right? With that said, here's a caveat, right? If you're planning to make all those traditional contributions, you have to make plans not only for those future distributions, but you have to make a plan for how you're going to pay those taxes, right? Before 59 and a half, if you're doing Roth conversions, you know, as an early retiree, you don't want to withhold the taxes from the conversions themselves because you'd have a 10% penalty on that portion because you're, you know, before 59 and a half. So Justin, in that scenario, I would 100% tell somebody in that scenario, if any money that they put into a 401k, right, employer-sponsored plan is going to be traditional, they probably won't be able to do traditional and deduct it for an IRA because of the income thresholds. But I would go all traditional as much as they can with a caveat of I would also love them to build up significant taxable brokerage assets so that in early retirement, they have flexibility that the last thing you want is to retire early and all your money is in your IRA. Right. So my ideal scenario would be kind of like a, you know, 40% of my money in pre-tax accounts, 40% of my money in taxable brokerage accounts, and then the last 20% in Roth by the time I retire as an early retiree. So I like to have a little bit more traditional is the way to go from a tax perspective. But for flexibility, my favorite account of all time is the taxable brokerage account because the money you take out isn't taxable, just the growth and the interest and dividends along the way. So yeah, absolutely. I would go traditional in that scenario but also building up significant taxable brokerage assets to cover some of your lifestyle needs and also cover the tax liability when when you're doing those early retirement Roth conversions. I actually really like that you just mentioned having a mix of both because I think a lot of times it's like traditional or Roth. It's never like what percentage of Roth versus what percentage of traditional because after talking through some of these advantages, it's like maybe if you do want to do that $10,000 cruise, like the day after you retire, 
maybe you can pull from the Roth and then you can, you know, you don't have to pay the extra taxes. But also in retirement, if you want to do some of those like qualified charitable distributions, or I think that's what the term was, right. you could do that out of your <laughs> traditional. So I think having money in both buckets is a smart thing to do. Is mm. there any rules of thumb or guidelines that you have for like, at a minimum, you should have like 10% in the Roth versus the traditional. I know it's going to be an it depends, but it sounds yeah. like there's definitely advantages to having a little bit of money in both those types of accounts. It's funny that you mentioned that because in that scenario of the 40% traditional, 40% taxable brokerage and 20% Roth, the only reason in that scenario that I have Roth money is because I've been forced effectively to do the backdoor Roth okay. contributions, right? Yeah. So yeah, in this scenario, you know, Justin mentioned, if there weren't income limits to deduct a traditional IRA contributions, I probably wouldn't have gone traditional with the IRA too. I would say in that scenario, when you're, especially in the 30 plus percent marginal tax bracket, it's probably best to go traditional and only do Roth because you're effectively forced to your IRA contribution to Roth. But again, it's a limited contribution. But let's say you know there's six or $7,000 you're contributing to a Roth IRA. That's your only opportunity to do Roth. You wouldn't get a tax advantage going the other direction, right? Because you couldn't deduct it probably. But yeah, I think I would only add Roth. I guess you know, we can go on the flip side too, but I'd only add Roth for the sake of the backdoor contribution in that circumstance. So what's on the flip side? <laughs> so the flip side is like, let's say that you're doing all Roth. So when I was working at my previous employer, I was in like, you know, our household never made, you know, $100,000 a year. We were in like the 10%, 12% marginal tax bracket. And now that I'm thinking about financial independence and early retirement, I'm thinking there's a circumstance where it actually could make sense to contribute to traditional, even within the 10% or 12% marginal tax bracket, which sounds crazy because people are like, like, that's a low tax bracket. Just go Roth. Like, just pay the taxes. Like, but the flip side of what I was just talking about is one great thing about 401ks is they often have an employer match or like a non-elective contribution the employer makes. Even if you contribute to Roth as an employee, the employer contributes to pre-tax. I know that future tax legislation could change this in terms of like how they can make their contributions Roth as well. But what's nice is like if you are contributing to Roth through your employer, you know, you see your Roth 401k as one big account. There's a record keeper splitting up you know, employee Roth contributions, the growth on that portion, the employer pre-tax contributions, the pre-tax growth on that portion, right? And then if you have any after-tax backdoor kind of stuff. So if you do have a Roth 401k, you're possibly actually creating some balance there just by having the employer contribute pre-tax. So I think that's a great option is think if you are going to contribute to Roth, at least find a way, right? Whether through employer match or kind of maybe splitting your contributions, if you're kind of not just uncertain about future tax legislation, which is out of our control, like I used to think, oh, I'm definitely going to like try to retire early by 40. Now I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever stop working. Like I might be financially independent by 40, but I might be making good money for the rest of my life. Maybe I just hedge my bets and go maybe half traditional, half Roth. Or I go a little bit heavier on Roth knowing that the employer is going to like effectively push up some of the pre-tax contribution for me with their match or like non-elective contribution. I think kind of like Cody said, you know, most people are going to end up in that situation where you're going to have a blend of both, no matter how diehard or like brainwashed you've gotten about like Roth is the best or traditional is the best. Like, you know, you max out your traditional and then you start doing mega backdoor or regular backdoor and you're going to end up with some Roth or like you said, you put in Roth, you're going to end up with some matching, which is going to put you in traditional. So you're probably going to end up with both. So I know one kind of term that has thrown a lot of people for a loop is this like pro rata rule and thinking about like the mixing of monies. Is there any mm -hmm. kind of, you know, digestible way that we could walk <laughs> through like what that means and how do you right. know like what kind of consequences you have just created by mixing accounts? Yeah. So the pro rata rule 
Again, it's so funny that we even say the word rule. Like you're like the four percent rule or the you know, the four the pro rata rule. It sounds so brutal. And just like we say penalty instead of additional tax, the IRS actually only says additional tax, not penalty. When we make up our mind about something, we use like really brutal words to describe them. <laughs> so the pro rata rule, if you want to just simplify this, like it doesn't apply to your four hundred one k at all. It only applies to a traditional IRA. So one thing to know about a traditional IRA, this is a big misconception. So the traditional IRA. People always assume when you contribute to a traditional IRA, it's pre-tax. But the IRS has set income thresholds on whether or not you can deduct those traditional IRA contributions. One thing that's funny is people say, oh, I make too much to contribute to a traditional IRA. That's actually can't possibly be true <laughs> because there are no income thresholds to contribute to a traditional IRA, but only to deduct that contribution, right? So I could make $5 million a year. That would be really nice. I can make $5 million next year and contribute to a traditional IRA. Another thing is that if I wasn't covered, if you know, me or my spouse, if we weren't covered by an employer-sponsored plan, I could still deduct that contribution with a $5 million income. So again, the rules are, are goofy there. But really where it comes in the case, let's say somebody's contributing to the 401k at work. They have income, let's say, of like $300,000 as a household. They aren't able to deduct a traditional IRA contribution, but let's say that, that they still want to put money in there so they can at least benefit from the tax deferred growth in that account. Because if they would have put that account into a taxable brokerage account, they'd be paying taxes on the ongoing like interest or dividend income that's thrown off from their investments. Say, hey, I want some tax deferral, even if, if I'm not going to get the deduction. So if you contribute to a traditional IRA, deduct the contribution, that's where the pro rata issue comes in. So what you immediately see here is, even if that's the first time you contribute to a traditional IRA, you make an after-tax contribution. As soon as you put that money in, it's all after tax called cost basis, right? And by the way, if you want to look at your tax form, it's form 8606 is the form that tracks that reports these contributions and the cost basis versus the growth. But let's say that I put $1,000 into a traditional IRA and don't deduct it. A year later, all the growth on that $1,000 is pre-tax. So the only thing that I'm going to get back tax-free is the money I put in. But here's how the IRS thinks about IRAs. First of all, all IRAs are combined. Again, all traditional IRAs are combined, regardless if you deducted some contributions, you've done some deductible contributions, there's some growth that's pre-tax, right? The IRS just sees it as one pot. And a good way to think about this is like a pot of coffee. So the problem is like, I put money into a traditional IRA, I put coffee, right? Into my traditional IRA, didn't deduct it. As soon as there's growth, that growth is the cream. The coffee, you're like, and mentally, I'm thinking about there's coffee and there's cream on top. The IRS just sees it as like, they come in and stir it, they stir up the pot, <laughs> literally stir up the pot of coffee. And like, all they can assume is that this is the pot of coffee, right? Or, you know, actually they kind of assume it's like a pot of cream and it's up to you to report to them. No, 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 no. There's coffee and then there's cream. Those are separated. So the way the pro rata rule works, there's an exclusion ratio. So if I put a thousand dollars into account and it grows to $1,200, $200 of that is growth and a thousand dollars of that so 200 of that, 200 of the 1,200. So that's 17% of the account is growth, right? And the, the rest is my cost basis. Is like, like I shouldn't have to pay tax twice on the other portion, right? So you actually have to tell the IRS what portion is pre-tax and what portion is after-tax non-taxable on that form 8606. Otherwise, the IRS is just going to assume that it's all pro-rata, meaning like, so we actually make it pro-rata effectively. And I know this is like a roundabout way of saying it, but pro rata just means like 
I'm going to account for the pre-tax portion and the after-tax portion separately. Otherwise, the IRS is just going to assume that it's all taxable. And tax repairs mess this up all the time because people will spend decades making after-tax contributions to their traditional IRAs because their income's too high. And then in retirement, they, when they distribute income, when they distribute that $1,200, when you receive that 1099-R, that tax form and distribution from like Fidelity or Vanguard, they haven't seen your tax returns. They have no idea if you deducted those contributions or not. So they're going to say they have no idea how it's taxable. And most tax preparers are just assuming that it's all pre-tax, mm-hmm. that it's all going to be taxable as ordinary income. I found people who they've been contributing after tax. And then in, when distributing, because they didn't you know, clarify that even for themselves or go deeper with their tax repair, they end up paying tax on the same money twice, which is a really bad deal. So I would say if you are going to make any after-tax contributions to a traditional IRA, measure twice, right? That's my brand name. Measure twice before making that important decision, because not only is it going to affect future distributions, but you're going to be the one who's responsible for reporting and tracking the difference between after-tax contributions and your future growth. Awesome. All right. Thank you for that breakdown. I think that's something that a lot of our audience is probably falling into that category where they're making above, what is it now? Like 130 something, 140,000? Yeah, it's not, it's not very high. If you're covered by a workplace retirement plan, it's not very high once you can't deduct that contribution anymore. Yeah. So definitely something to look out for. I know we've kind of, I'm looking at the disadvantages sheet that you were kind enough to provide and reading through your articles. You have a ton of good stuff on this. I think we've already hit on a couple of these, but I was hoping we could kind Mm -hmm. of rifle through some of the disadvantages of these accounts in some scenarios where it's like, this is just not going to be the best option for you. Maybe we'll start with traditional. You feel like kind of think like a a big cross here, right? Like the advantages on one side are the disadvantages of the other side, typically, right? So the disadvantages of traditional, all the advantages for the traditional are on the front end when you contribute right? The disadvantages come at the back end, like when you take distributions from your traditional account. So the disadvantages, right, is assuming that you've only made pre-tax or your deducted contributions going in, every single dollar that comes out of that IRA or 401k, the traditional 401k, by the way, like when you retire, that's typically going to be rolled like a direct rollover into a traditional IRA. But every dollar potentially you take out of that account is going to be taxable as ordinary income at those marginal tax rates. So a disadvantage is that you will pay most likely taxes on that money. And those tax rates could be higher, as you mentioned, Justin, earlier. We actually said the opposite earlier, but your tax rates may be higher in retirement. This could come from, let's say that you retire from like a pension plan. You retire with a pension plan. You still have rental property. You retire at 60, you know, at full retirement age, you start playing. Like, let's say that you retire at 70 years old, like kind of in a later retirement. You know, you have social security income. You might have a pension. You might have rental property income. Like, the money that you take out of your traditional IRA, and actually you're forced to, that's one of the disadvantages. Once the RMDs require minimum distributions kick in, you might actually be paying more taxes on that money than you did, than you would have like when you were contributing. So the tax rates may be higher, not just because of future tax legislation, but your tax rates may be higher. That's a really great point to make, by the way, is don't focus on the tax rates, focus on what your tax hmm. rates would be, because that's all that really matters. And more, even more than that, focus on your sources of taxable income at least assumed source of taxable income in retirement. Those are disadvantages, of course, RMDs, as I just mentioned. Also, if you die, if you die with a traditional IRA with all pre-tax money in it, your beneficiaries, they don't get like, it doesn't have a stepped up cost basis like taxable brokerage accounts where it's like suddenly free for them, right? (laughs) So there's a IRD, income in respect of a decedent. There's a rule that if you didn't pay taxes on it, whoever inherits it still has to pay taxes on those distributions. And the inheritance rules are brutal right now. So like if I died and my kid inherited it, assuming that they're not a minor, 
you know, once I die and they inherit that money, they only have 10 years to take all that money out as taxable income. And like we mentioned before, if they're in their highest earning years, you know, if I die when I'm 80 and my kid is 60, they're probably in their highest earning years. And the last thing they want is have to pull out, you know, dad's $2 million IRA within 10 years. That's brutal in terms of taxes. And then lastly, one thing that people don't think about much because we think, you know, life is going to be together versus separate. Like, you know, my wife and I, at some point there will just be one of us. Right, one will most likely die before the other, unless we're in, uh, you know, horrific plane crash. Hopefully not. Jeez. Right, we're going deep on the podcast today. Yeah, but what I'm thinking about though is, you know, if the surviving widow, guess what? They're not married filing jointly anymore. They're now a single filer, and not only are they a single filer, but it's not like expenses and income just cut in half when somebody dies. Right, it's typically around like seventy to eighty percent of the income is still needed or still coming your way. So if somebody who's in their 70s dies, their surviving spouse is now a filing, is filing single on their taxes, and they're continuing all the RMDs, the required minimum distributions that you had, the decedent had. So you can see that that's really where the tax rate on an annualized basis just goes through the roof. You know, retirement tax bomb, some people call it who typically sell products. <laughs> but yeah, it's a big deal. That's a big deal with the disadvantages is the income doesn't just die with you. It dies. That's distributed as taxable income for your, your future generations. Now, moving to the disadvantages of Roth, it's you know, the opposite. You actually got the disadvantages up front because there's, there's kind of less disadvantages for the Roth because you got a lot of the disadvantages up front by paying taxes up front. But the disadvantages of contributions, right, is you could actually be paying higher taxes on that money if you contribute. Like Justin's example, if you're in the 32% marginal tax bracket, you contribute to Roth. I just look in here. For every $1,000 you contribute, you're paying $471 to get that thousand in there when you're contributing. So a disadvantage of Roth could actually be on that contribution side where you're a really high income. And then guess what? When you retire, you're like, oh man, like I'm in a lower income, I'm in a lower marginal tax bracket in retirement for those distributions. You're like, man, I should have thought twice about that. Another disadvantage is like, you know, again, out of our control, but unknown future tax legislation. You know, there could be future rules, not just about like higher or lower tax rates in retirement, but also, you know, how they treat Roth I'm not very tinfoil hat on this. Like, I don't really believe that they're going to suddenly like make Roth distributions taxable. Some people say, what if they make the Roth IRA distributions taxable at some point? They love when we pay taxes, but I don't think they're going to do that because uh, in terms of paying taxes twice, like that's typically not going to happen, or at least they're going to be grandmothered in if that happens. And another disadvantage is, oh, here's a huge one for early retirees. A disadvantage of contributing to Roth is that in early retirement, you don't have a lot of options for withdrawal, right? You can withdraw your original contributions without tax or penalty, but all the earnings are kind of locked in, right? And you know, in early retirement, when you have traditional money, you have an option of doing like, you probably have talked about Roth conversion ladders before on your show. Mm-hmm. You know, if not, look that up, you know, go pretty deep there. Roth conversion ladders, you can do substantially equal periodic payments. SEPP is another early distribution rule. So a disadvantage is that you could be really kind of locked into only being able to take out your basis and not being able to take out the growth in early retirement. And then another th- disadvantage is, is that your retirement income, if your retirement income is too low, especially in early retirement, guess what? Like your premium tax credit, your subsidies for healthcare, you actually have to have a certain level of income not to fall to the Medicaid status for your healthcare. Hmm. Right? So you actually want, kind of ironically, you actually want taxable income in retirement. Not only for that, but also you always want to fill up at least a standard deduction, which by the way, standard deduction is around like 27000 yeah, $28,000 for married filing jointly. So why not? Like you always want at least enough income to fill up. It's a practically a 0% you 
marginal tax rate that you can take money out of. So if I were retiring early, I'd be like, I definitely want to take out at least 27,000 of income because it's going to be tax-free, at least on the federal level. So maybe hopping into another kind of scenario-based thing. I think most of the time when, you know, whether it's looking up an article or rules of thumb or whatever, it is with this in mind, like, hey, you're going to leave some kind of legacy behind and thinking about kids. And But let's say somebody who's not, let's say somebody who does not plan on having kids, they're Mm. not worried about what they leave behind. They don't really care about what happens to their the tax situations after they die, what's something that they might do that's different than someone mm. who is in a more, you know, kind of traditional, like, hey, we got a couple of kids, we want to make sure that they're taken care of kind of standpoint? Really good question. It's funny, I just had somebody present on, you know, my educational platform. He only works with child-free and childless families because, as you know, like, die with zero, <laughs> like that <laughs> concept of die with zero is very much a concept for child-free or childless families. In terms of thinking about that, it's funny, again, going back, a lot of people think, hey, well, I'm not worried about the taxes. Like, you know, my kids will pay it. Like, let the kids pay the taxes, right? These people, a lot of times are like, you know, not only do I not have kids, right? I don't even know who would, re- you know, maybe like a niece or like, you know, another family member would receive this income. So they're probably less concerned about like the inheritance rules. I think for that standpoint, you really be really focused on like, what is their tax? Like, how would you maximize their taxes in their lifetime? Not too dissimilar, but I still think that if you're in a higher marginal tax brackets while working, it still would make sense to go traditional, providing more flexibility to unwind those accounts tax efficiently in retirement. I guess the only caveat would be that you're really not focused on like the tax-free growth as much. A really great example of this, right? Let's say that you're trying to like, kind of die with zero anyway. Like you're not actually trying to benefit from like even like a future generation of like Roth growth or you know decades of growth on Roth. So I'd probably convert less. I'd probably try to find like a nice balance. But to the point where just where my RMDs for my traditional accounts don't exceed my need for income in retirement, but probably not more than that. I probably wouldn't go too aggressive on the Roth side once you're in retirement because you're not really looking at like optimizing you know, decades of growth for a future generation, but you're trying to spend down. But at the same time, right, if you are trying to die with zero, guess what? You're going to be increasing your spending, right? So on the flip side, that can actually make the case. I wouldn't even make the case for contributing more to a Roth but actually contributing more to taxable brokerage accounts. Hmm. So I might do something where if I know I want to die with zero and I'm kind of in the kind of the, the last years of working, even though the tax benefit might be nice, to, you know, to contribute to traditional, I might be trying to like increase how much taxable brokerage money I have because especially if you're child-free and you just retired, guess what? Like your go-go stage can look a lot more go-go <laughs> than other <laughs> families because you're like, hey, like when you're traveling around the world, you don't have to think about who takes care of the kids, right? Unless you have dogs or cats, you think of who takes care of them, right? But I would think you'd just be a little bit less aggressive with your conversions probably in that scenario if you want to die with zero and focus a lot more on flexibility in the tax or brokerage accounts if you're going that route. And to lay out another scenario, there's a lot of listeners and kind of myself included who might have income in retirement that isn't like ordinary income. Maybe it's like real estate rental income, or maybe it's Mm -hmm. dividends or other income sources like that. But let's say it's like a pretty significant source of income. And someone who's in that scenario, who's maybe in their 20s, 30s now, they're in their highest earning years, they're just aggressively buying up rental properties that they're, you know, building Mm -hmm. up this huge dividend portfolio. What's kind of the general blanket recommendation for that type of person? Like, should they just be hammering their traditional now since they're in their (laughs) highest earning years? Should they be doing a mix of Roth? I'm just... I know there's a lot of people who are kind of like me in our audience. I think that would be a helpful scenario to lay out. Yeah. So a big part of this is like what you said, that the highest earning years, 
Yeah. I think it's so important that like we individually assume what do I believe will be my highest earning years? Because one thing you mentioned, Cody, is like you might be buying up rental properties. So this might actually not be your highest earning years. Like it feels like it. It's been your highest earning year so far. Yeah. But will it actually be your highest earning year? In that circumstance, I would not focus necessarily on like my current income sources. A good way to think about this, you know, I always say give every dollar a job and a use by date. And by use by date, I mean when you contribute to an account at least make an assumption in your head of when will I take that money back out, right? If you kind of think to yourself, hey, like this money I'm putting in this account, I'm probably never going to take it out. Like, like I'm going to have plenty of income for my rentals like forever. My doors are only going up. You know, I'm not going to be selling my properties in my, my 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm going to have these forever. Hopefully inherited by my kiddos if you're not child-free, like, you know, with a, a step up in cost basis on the rental properties and things. I think in that circumstance, your income might actually not go down. Even though, you know, rental property you have like, you know, depreciation, right? As long as you're not thinking of selling and having depreciation recapture, which is pretty brutal, right? At least there's limitations on that. But a lot of that, even though it feels favorable, but at the end of the day, like whatever does flow through is going to be ordinary in a way. I wouldn't get too concerned with like the favorable like dividend and long-term capital gains is a separate, like carve those out. Those are separate tax treatments. So I wouldn't really worry about that. But when you mentioned real estate, getting more doors in, the, in, your, in your life and you're going to be retiring with like 10 rental properties, you're probably going to have higher income in retirement than you have now, which would actually make the case for making some Roth contributions or at least hedging that bet. Like we mentioned earlier, it might make sense for you to go Roth and then your employer, if you do have an employer at that point, to put in their pre-tax to kind of hedge the bets. And try not to get too caught up in like making permanent decisions here. Thankfully, you only have to make this decision every year. So just (laughs) this year, I might go all traditional because I think a certain way. And the next year, I'm like, oh, like, I'm thinking differently now about what my future might look like. I just inherited five properties. Like that's going to change things in the future. So yeah, I always think year to year. I always tell people like only spend one hour a year looking at and trading your investment accounts at the most. I don't think you need to spend a lot of time and effort you know, doing implementation, but spend a little bit more time planning. So in that circumstance, I might actually go more Roth if I knew my income. If I had the idea that like I'm never going to stop working because I love working, not because they have to, but because I, I want to. And my income will most likely just continue to ride up with those properties and things like that. Then I'm probably going to like be pushing more toward Roth with a hedge from the employer portion. This is less of a question, more of a statement. But I just know, like, as we've went through all these things, like, it can sound complicated. It can maybe sound stressful. Like, oh, which one do I pick? But I think <laughs> the awesome thing for a lot of, especially like our listeners, is that if you're saving, you know, fifty plus percent, seventy plus percent, you're looking to retire in your thirties. You're talking about optimization. <laughs> you're talking about trying to right. fix the those third fringes. level down, right? Yeah. And you're going to be fine. And like you're so far ahead of everyone else. And so I just want to make sure I get like that out there in this episode as we talk through all this. And like it can seem stressful, but like you're so far ahead of the competition in quotes, you know, you're doing so well that now it's a point of like optimization and not necessarily like either direction you went, you'd probably be fine. Mm. I want to add there this sounds like a kind of a goofy rule of thumb. If you're able to save half your income, you'd probably be tilting toward traditional contributions. And I don't just mean that, I'm not just assuming that you have high income, but that's assuming that you have, you're making more than you spend. If that trend continues in early retirement, it actually sounds like you're, you're going to be able to maintain your lifestyle with less income in retirement. Just that idea of, if anybody tells me, hey, I save 50% of my income, that either means they have a high income or low expenses or both, which actually both tilt toward making traditional contributions, not Roth contributions. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely an, an interesting point. 
Well, I think we're wrapping up our time here and just want to thank you for coming on. I know I kind of put feelers out into our community, our peers, and like, I think like five or six people were like, you have to have Cody Garrett on. He's the <laughs> guy to talk traditional versus Roth for early retirees. And I know you have like a ton of content. You have videos, you have articles, you have like a community of all this stuff. Where is the best place or places for people to get in touch, follow along and figure out what's best for their situation? I own four companies, but only two <laughs> like kind of make sense for this audience. I own a financial planning firm. It's at full capacity. So I'm not looking for more clients there. So I won't even mention the site. I made an educational blog. I'll be offering like video courses and stuff on how to create your own financial plan, you know, as a DIY investor, as a non-advisor. That's at measuretwicemoney.com. On the flip side, if you're really nerdy and want to see how it's done from like a financial planner perspective, literally on March 1st, you'll probably by the time you hear this on March 1st, I'm launching measuretwicesplanners.com. So it's a seven-hour video course showing literally step-by-step everything I do to create a comprehensive financial plan as a financial planner. I actually show a full comprehensive financial plan, how I review every financial document, like including how I review tax returns, how I review the mortgage statement, insurance policies, investment statements. So if you want to see how it's done on the back end from somebody who does this for a living, the family in that circumstance, I'm showing how two people, the Susan and Steve Sampleton are retiring at age 50 with a newborn daughter. I don't know how they had a newborn daughter at 50, but we'll just avoid that. (laughs) But if you want to see how it's done, yeah, seven hour video course, you can do a free trial at measuretwicesplanners.com. If you're a binge watcher and want to just try to, as a DIY investor, just want to binge watch through all those videos. But I really do encourage you, even if you don't work with a financial advisor, financial planner, by the way, if you do hire a financial advisor, financial planner, I would only go the flat fee route. I've been kind of known to say, you know, investment management is only a part, but the financial planning is the most important part, especially for DIY investors. So yeah, go to measuretwicesplanners.com if you want to learn how it's done, especially if you want to go deeper beyond your fundamental education, which you've probably gotten from Justin and Cody at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know our audience wears the nerdy moniker with pride. So um, go for it. I know they'll be yeah. <laughs> excited about watching something like that. And like yeah. Cody said, thank you so much, Cody, for coming on the show. It's obvious that you know your stuff and you let us just berate you with questions and answered them without a sweat. So I really it depends. appreciate Aren't you glad I didn't say it depends to every question? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why we try to give you some scenarios. That way you didn't have to pull that card too much. <laughs> Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend. And also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.